Welcome to Because the Beatles, a podcast about the Beatles, everything about the Beatles 24-8. I'm Erica. And I'm Allison. And before we start, be sure to subscribe on iTunes or wherever you get your podcast. And if you're enjoying Because the Beatles, feel free to leave us a preferably five-star review so other Beatle maniacs can find us. Also, don't forget to follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, BC the Beatles everywhere. And, you know, if you missed it last time, our Instagram is back. So please do follow us on that. It's very fun. We post a bunch of crap. It's good stuff. It's good stuff. I feel like it's been a long time since we've chatted and there's been so much that's happened. Paul just got in the way again. Paul is just way too busy. I can't keep up with that 76-year-old man. It's insane. (laughs) Starting off with this week in Beatles history, as we always do, uh, very apropos, uh, September 19th, 1934, Brian Epstein was born in mm. Liverpool, and it was a glorious day indeed. He was born at a private nursery home at Fort Rodney Street, and we'll post a picture of, they have a nice little plaque actually on the front of the building now uh, that I, I got to check out last time I was in Liverpool last fall, and it's really cute and so lovely. So happy birthday, Brian. Uh, and September 24th, 1941, another birthday. Actually, there's a lot of Beatle-related birthdays in September. It's so crazy, but September 24th. Linda Eastman, born in New York. Obviously later, Linda McCartney. I love Linda Eastman. I love her. Right. She is one of my favorite Beatle people. Beatles included. She is one of my favorite Beatle people. She's so independent. She did so many pioneering things, not only in music, but in vegetarianism, in her photography career, in the fact that she was a divorced single mother who learned a trade on her own and went out and became super famous in less than a year. She was a force to be reckoned with. I love Linda. We will talk so much more about her. Oh my gosh, we have to do that soon because she is so wonderful. And I love, obviously, Wide Prairie. It's such a great compilation of all her records. And, uh, you know, she gets, she takes a lot of flack even today still for her singing and her musical abilities, but whatever. Like she did not give a shit and she did her thing. And she like, you know, she could have so easily just bowed to being Paul's wife, but she never did. No, never. She did what she wanted. She was an entrepreneur. And the idea of vegetarianism is so common today. But that was groundbreaking back then. People didn't do that. Nobody knew what to eat if you were a vegetarian at that point. Yeah. And I think Paul recently, it may have been one of his interviews, he just did like in GQ or something, but he was talking about that too, where it's like in the beginning you ate like sprouts. And now because of Linda and she, you know, came out with that whole line of vegetarian options, it's really changed everything. Right. She had a saying that she wanted to fill that hole in the middle of the plate, the hole that meat left behind if you didn't have meat in that meat and potato standard dinner. And she did that. She was probably one of the first uh, mainstream grocery lines that sold prepackaged vegetarian um, convenience food. So, yes, I love Linda and we will talk about her so much more. And in current news, God, there's so much. There's so much. And of course, we have to start off. And I hate we have to fucking start off with this. <laughs> yeah. Breaking news. That was oh. not breaking news. Yeah. Not breaking news. Unbreaking news. Guess what? The Beatles had a circle jerk. Yay! Oh my God, I did not know this. No? For the first three years of my life, and then I did. For the rest of my life. Yeah. Really, though, the real news about this was how many people thought it was news and freaked out about it. 
Exactly. I remember I read it, you know, in the in the interview and I was like, oh, this again. That was my first thought. It's like, OK, moving on. Like, why does he trot this one out all the time? It's not like at the level of, you know, Jimi Hendrix learned Sergeant right. Pepper. It's, you know, he doesn't tell it in concert. I, I kind of want him to. <laughs> <laughs> he's, well, he, he can now. Everybody will want it. Yeah, I know. <laughs> I feel like he and John like talked about it all the time in the seventies, like those interviews and it's in almost, I don't know, maybe not every Beatles book, but so many Beatles books. And it's certainly in many years from now, which was the early nineties. And that was Paul's uh, ghost written by Paul, basically. So the best part about this was the reaction from the internet and the (laughs) reaction from the New York newspapers. (laughs) <laughs> exactly. And then the normies as uh, somebody in the um, the Screw It, if you haven't listened to Screw It's podcast, it's such a great podcast, but yes. there's a great Facebook group and somebody on there was like, oh, the normies didn't know. And I'm like, that's such a great way to put it. <laughs> yeah. You know, like the fly by night fans. Yeah. I heard something else. It was something that, you know, muggles don't know this. Yeah. Muggles don't know it. They don't. Now you do. And now you'll never forget it. So if you write fan fiction, let us know how this impacts your fan fiction. Does it make it better? Does it make it worse? Does it make it more real? I mean, McLennan is a thing. So let's... Oh, my God. We'll have to probably talk about that at some point. Oh, for sure. Now it's like McLennan's going to be mainstream. Yeah, McLennan's like like based on a true story now. <laughs> oh, my God. Yeah, I know. With like ancillary characters like Nigel Whaley and all the... <laughs> <laughs> like probably Pete Shot and I'll be in there somewhere and can't wait for the next there, Beatles biopic. It's gonna be like rated X. Uh- <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it'll probably share a title with the uh, New York Post. <laughs> Beat the Beatles. Beat the Beatles, so good. My favorite part of the story, which I kind of, I forgot because I don't really think about this very much, but when they were in the group and they were doing their thing, John Lennon was. Um, yelling out inspirational phrases to help people, you know, keep on going. And most of the time it was like Brigitte Bardot and other women that they thought it was really, you know, hot. And every once in a while he'd pull out Winston Churchill. As he he would. As he would. (laughs) If you're a fan fiction writer, you're out there, please, you know, write the Winston Churchill. I want to hear the slash. I want to read it. Don't forget uh, old Winnie on that one. (laughs) Anyway, moving on. Uh, Imagine's been having a big moment, the album and the film. The film's in theaters right now. I really want to go see it. It's playing in L.A., if you're in L.A. Uh, I think it's at the Egyptian tonight. We're recording this on Friday. Um, But they've restored it, and I think they've come out with a big box for the, you know, uh, anniversary of the Imagine album. Mm -hmm. And there's some never-before-seen footage in it, um, including Lennon with George Harrison, Klaus Foreman, Alan White, Nicky Hopkins doing How Do You Sleep? Actually, that was funny. That was recommended to me on Spotify today for my Discover Weekly. And I was like, Spotify, you know me so well. I I did want to hear this. And I haven't seen it yet, but I really want to see it because I'm thinking back to that scene in Let It Be where Paul's trying to show George how to play something and he gets really pissed. Mm. Remember that part? And How yes. Do You Sleep wasn't that much later. So here's George on the song with John and they're recording it together and it's so obviously about Paul. And I just want to see George's face. Have you seen the film ever? I've seen it a long time ago. Yeah, me too. Long, long time ago. I was watching the promo because I haven't gotten to see it in the theater yet. And it looks gorgeous. It looks so sweet. You know, a lot of it is seems to be John and Yoko just frolicking together, dancing together, being together. 
Yeah, and being goofy together, too, which is really lovely. You know, it's them as a couple. And I hope that this coming out now, maybe it will help reimagine the idea of what John and Yoko were. You know, especially Yoko has got so much vitriol, so much flack for her personality. And I'm sure a lot of it was racially motivated, the hatred. What you really see, you know, you see past all of these, these layers of old hate and old resentment. And you just see a beautiful couple making art together, dancing together. It's gorgeous. Yeah. And it's so early on in the relationship. It's, it's just it's really cute. It's like a high, you know, high school, two virgins, as they say, you know, yep. but it's like two high school kids just being giddy. I love the film. I love, you know, the Oyoko segment. It's really sweet. And you know, it's really cute. The parallels between this and the same kind of things that Paul and Linda were making. Like, do you remember? Yeah. Like, I think maybe Heart of the Country. It was one of those earlier songs where they put out kind of a video and it was them in the fields and them like, on the beach with their pants rolled up like waiting in the water and stuff like that like man i forgot about that i forgot about uh that video yeah it's so sweet and as much as they were at odds to the point where they were writing these songs about each other they were in sync they were parallel in how they were expressing what they were doing how they're working with another partner yeah well it's funny because you know like you just said there's so much hate towards yoko for the break of the beatles but you know, and this is something we'll probably have to address because the anniversary of the breakup of the Beatles is coming up too. Um, but, you know, you consider John's relationship with Yoko and it's really unfair how much hate she gets because Paul was having this really passionate, insane, intense, you know, love affair with Linda at the same time. And they both were in the studio. They both were having, you know, this thing. But Yoko only gets the hate. Maybe you're right, Erica. Maybe it is a lot of it racially charged, which is terrible. Yeah. Obviously, yeah. Yoko inserted herself a bit more than Linda ever would have into, you know, into the Beatles, you know, sitting on the amp and, you know, singing and, you know. And stealing George's biscuits, lest we forget. How dare she? Lest we forget. How dare she? (laughs) Maybe that's why George was so mad that day. I don't know. I think that's probably right. And uh, really quick, that just jogged my memory that I read that Let It Be might get recut for its anniversary, which I'm so excited for. I love that film. It's never out enough. I think I've seen it like once or twice on like a bootleg like file that was being passed around. So that will be amazing. Yeah, it's so hard to find. And it's like, like they don't even name it, let it be. It's so restricted when I get, you know, I've seen the file and it's like the Beatles in 1969. Like, you know, Mm -hmm. it's let it be. Like, really? It's about time. And I hope that there's more footage. I hope they can add stuff. I just hope they don't like, I just hate how everything's sort of candy coated after when it comes out, you know. 50 years later, because it's like, we know the Beatles hated each other. I want to see that. Like, people get so depressed when they, you know, see them kind of like snipping at each other and being passive aggressive. But I'm like, this is a historical document. This is how it was. Like, show it as it should be. I think it'll depend on the level of Paul's involvement in it. You know, if if, if Paul and Ringo, I mean, if they want to sanitize it the way they sanitize the anthology, it's going to be Disneyfied. But... Maybe Paul's at the point where he just wants to show it. I mean, I don't, you can't cut, I mean, it'd be a 15 minute film if you cut out, yeah. you know, the looks and the snark and, you know, the obvious ceiling. I can't imagine you would take on that project and not keep in or even add more of the conflict because that's, that's why you want to watch that movie. Well, I mean, hopefully if Paul's latest go around in the media is any indication, he seems to be getting a little bit more honest. Like, and by that, I mean, like, just a, t- a hair more honest. Like when he was talking uh, one of the interviews about 
you know, John broke up the Beatles, which we all know that, you know, I can't even get into it because it's just so much. But, you know, mm-hmm. we we all know how to sort of unfold it. But, you know, him actually coming out and sort of feeling comfortable to even talk about that is is different for him. Speaking of anniversaries, another big anniversary is coming up, and that's the White Album, 50th yes. anniversary release date, November 9th. Uh, it looks like there is going to be a press event coming up on September 26th. Um, the socials are posting some teasers about that. It seems like it could be a listening party and kind of a presentation of what's to come and what's to be, what's what's going to be different. Yeah, I think I saw a picture of uh, the box set and it's hard at this stage to know what's real and what's not because mm-hmm. so many people as we know with egypt station coming out like love to like mock up stuff that's actually not real but uh from what i saw being circulated on i think instagram it looks like a pretty extensive box set um with some nice booklets and i don't i think four records yeah i think it'll be good i I'm not so excited about potentially hearing a 17-minute version of Helter Skelter, but <laughs> as long as they keep Revolution Number Nine the same and I don't have to listen to that, then I'm I'm good. Yeah. Oh, it's a 26-minute version no. of Revolution Nine. It's gonna be amazing. Mm, yeah. I'm skip. <laughs> Even they know we can't do it. Nobody can do it. Yeah, I, I can't do it. I'm sorry. I'm sorry if that's your favorite Beatles song. Don't at me. It's just ugh, I hate it. But at me if that's your favorite Beatles song. I wanna I wanna know. That's oh. true. Do you exist? <laughs> I want to know why, please. How baked are you all the time? Like, why is that your fave? There's so many more. There's so many more Beatles songs. (laughs) (laughs) It's not the only white guys. (laughs) Yeah, let us know. You've been lied to your whole life. (laughs) It's the only one. (laughs) You have options. (laughs) Oh, my God. Anyway, speaking of Paul and Egypt Station, Egypt Station hit number one. What, what? On the Billboard charts, Paul's first debut number one his whole fucking life no Congrats, Paul. it's not his whole life is it his first date yeah his, oh, his first, first debut number first one first debut number one first yeah. number one in 36 years i think oh yeah but first debut wild. wow yeah that was that's good i could see that coming though they really obviously we talked about it at length we did a whole episode on egypt station um the midnight when it came out so go listen to that but um you know everybody I knew was buying it i went to buy it and never buy records definitely this one was a big deal so kudos paul good job i don't know what it was but paul was everywhere and people really hooked into him this time capital did a really nice tribute to paul outside of their iconic um building on hollywood and vine here in la i went down and took some pictures of it and i actually drove around back i never noticed um but there's a billboard back there for each of stations i posted that also um on our socials so take a look but uh yeah the the capital mural is really nice it's sort of honoring paul for his whole career and not just for egypt station but i think it's funny considering yeah he's just coming back to capital again i'm sure they're thrilled to have him back and they're showing it it's Mm -hmm. nice and in other Paul news, the Freshen Up tour started the other day in Quebec City and Montreal, continues throughout Canada with some dates in Winnipeg and Edmonton, and then it heads to Austin for Austin City Limits. He's the headliner in early October. Oh, I still want to go. I want to go too. I have heard oh. some things about the set list. It's not that much different than the usual things that he's been doing. His soundcheck set list is way more epic, but... You know, it's fine. Yeah, that's fine. why you have to pay two thousand dollars to yeah, see that. It's kind of it's kind of worth it for the shit he does in the sound check. So mm-hmm. I mean he's doing Fleming Pie in the sound check. Spoiler. <sighs> it's my favorite. Anyway. I will take a deep breath. And another news, Allison becomes homeless because she buys tickets to the sound check. Mm, don't say it. It's true, 
It's true. It's self-fulfilling prophecy. God damn it. It's worth it. It's worth it. It is. I'll sleep in a box Yolo. for that. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, if you saw Paul, let us know what you thought because I want to yeah. know because he hasn't even announced dates in our areas yet. I know. What the fuck are you waiting for? I, I heard a rumor of like a San Diego date, but nothing confirmed yet. And I'm willing to buy that dumb lanyard to get my pre-sale code. Yeah, that's so, actually pretty saying. cool. Eight dollars for yeah. a lanyard with the pre-sale code. I mean, it says a lot about how hard it is to get tickets and how much that sucks generally. Yeah, and we all know it's pain in the ass to get Paul tickets. Yeah, but if you really, really want to see him, it's not a bad it's idea. Worth it. Well, Paul is not only doing concerts; he is celebrating with his family. A very funny photo appeared online today of Paul with, I think, his step grandson. Um, it is really funny. Nobody knows how to take a selfie selfie <laughs> of him and yeah, his step-grandson all. outside Yom Kippur services, which he attended with um, Nancy's family. So it was such a strange one. I think I'm going to blame the grandson. You don't take a selfie from that angle, like the low angle, because, I mean, you know, have some pity on your, like, step-granddad there, kiddo. Yeah. <laughs> I wouldn't take a, a selfie from that angle, Jesus. No, no. Oh, my God. I would rather do anything than, like, take a selfie, a downward selfie. Yeah. <laughs> but anyway, check it out. <laughs> we'll repost. It's funny and kind of nice that Paul is not just the guy with the number one album on the Billboard charts right now. He's the guy who goes to Yom Kippur services with his family in New York. Yeah, that's so nice. And before we completely leave Paul land, we've got a very special announcement for you guys. And uh, as you know, and we posted it on our socials as well, but uh, the New York City Metro came out with special Metro cards with Egypt Station on the back of them. And we have one just for you. I found them actually the same night that I went to stalk Paul's concert at Grand Central Station. <laughs> so jealous. <laughs> It was was so, that amazing or what? That was amazing. That was so much fun. Like, I could barely hear him. I could barely, like, I couldn't see him, but I knew he was there. And that was awesome. Was it crazy crowded? Was it, like, insane? Pretty crowded. It wasn't as crowded as I would imagine. I think that a lot of people came and went because, you know, you really couldn't hear what what mm -hmm. was going on. The crowd just kind of kept going in and out and there was certainly interest and and people were all over the place there were cops that were restricting the only real parts that you could see you can't hear it on the youtube video but there were really loud train announcements during the entire show from my end of it really super loud and i was thinking like what are they like is this like the train atmosphere like is this cool like is something they wanted but you can't hear it so somehow they managed to soundproof a room in the busiest train terminal probably in the country, if not the world. Yeah, that was one of my thoughts, too, because it's so echoey in there. It's like a big chamber. But yeah, the sound was really great from what we could hear. So anyway, I snagged a uh, Metro card with Egypt Station on the back after weirdly asking lots and lots of people who were buying Metro cards, hey, did you get this? Did you get one with Egypt Station? And they're like, what? And like, okay, well... <laughs> They're just not cool. They're they not, don't know. They're not cool. But I finally found somebody and I found the terminal and I did it. So Yay. we have one for you and we have a contest for you. So yes, we do. leave us a review on iTunes and follow us on our socials and then DM us in any way that you want and show us a link. Tell us that you did the review 
And by our next episode, we will collect all of those. And one lucky person at random from that pot will win the Egypt Station Metro card. Basically, the too long didn't read is make sure you give us a way to contact you. Because if you just leave us a review, we might not know who it is. And we don't obviously don't have your email addresses. So just shoot us with a way to contact you on any way you can. Socials, email, bcthebeatles at gmail.com. Uh, and yeah, you can have your very own Egypt Station Metro card. What, what? I love mine. They're actually going on eBay. Like people are trying to sell them for like a hundred bucks. Oh my gosh. That's crazy. Yeah. But I probably would buy one if, uh, you know, my friend Erica didn't get me one. I've got a nice care package for you with an Egypt Station Metro card and a Beat the Beatles cover. I'm going to frame that. I think someday <laughs> when we have our own uh, Because the Beatles office, we should definitely frame that and hang it. For sure. That'll be our like centerpiece. <laughs> We are classy broads. We are so classy. It's amazing. <laughs> it's amazing. Uh, but, you know, book club's pretty classy. So let's talk about Beatles Book Club really yeah, quick. So we, we announced uh, Beatles Book Club, hashtag Beatles Book Club, I think on our last episode. So our first book is Love Me Do, The Beatles Progress by Michael Braun. And in just a few short days, we'll be doing our first uh, book club discussion we're going to admit it's a kind of a hard book to get your hands on, but Amazon has it for $8.99 Kindle version, which you can also read on your iPhone. Really good book. I actually just finished it and I'm going to reread it. And uh, it's all about like the Beatles in early 64 through their time in America. It's told in a contemporary voice because this guy is actually writing it as it's happening. So it's very like unbiased. It's not tainted by time. And John Lennon said about it. And I quote, a true book. He, meaning Michael Braun, wrote How We Were, which was Bastards. Yep. And it's all in the book. You'll never see a Beatles book like this. It's fun, engaging. It's not that long. And it just puts the Beatles in a whole new raw kind of light, especially if you're looking at it compared to, I don't know, the anthology, <laughs> going back to sanitizing <laughs> the Beatles reputation. There's one chapter in this book. We won't obviously talk a lot about it here, but where you're sort of just dropped in the middle of the Beatles conversation. And it it plays out like you're there. It's amazing. My favorite period of Beatles history is early Beatles. So if, if you're like me and you're really into that period, this is one of the most fascinating books you're going to read. And again, it's not one that's really out there too much. This is a real treasure. So join us. Read along with us. Hashtag Beatles Book Club. Get the book on Amazon. Can't wait to hear what you think of it. Contact us. Let us know what you think. And we'll be discussing it uh, in our mini-sode airing October 1st. Yay! Today's featured discussion is about one of our favorite people, Allison's especially, Brian Epstein. Yeah. My favorite beetle. Not sarcastic, not even hyperbolizing. He is my favorite beetle. He's at least the third beetle, if, if not maybe the second for you. Yeah. So, I mean, obviously there's so much we could talk, do um, and cover about Brian. He was such a multifaceted guy. He was deep. He was interesting. He had a lot of different sides to him. But we decided to pick a few different areas of his life, his, of his career, of his work with the Beatles, and some of the pervading things that go around about him. We asked on socials if anybody had any questions about Brian, so we got some good responses, so we'll address those as well. Brian, to me, why he is my favorite, if I could just address this, I think he was really kind of the glue that held them together, and we'll see as we talk about him. He was a big part in why the Beatles ultimately fell apart. You know, his death was really kind of the blow that did them in. 
So you can't really talk about the Beatles without talking about Brian. Hence why we are probably going to do multiple episodes. Yes. Because there's no way you can cover this in one. But, you know, I guess it's appropriate to start at the beginning here. Um, and that would be how Brian discovered the Beatles. And that's something that's a really contested, debated uh, theory. And it's funny because it's debated within the Beatles like inside circle it's not even the fans the fans sort of get into it but it's really like the people that were there that have a big issue with it so first of all allegedly uh there was a guy named raymond jones uh who came into nems which was brian's record shop which was very short walk from the cavern and most teenagers went there to buy their records so this teenager called raymond jones goes in october 28th 1961 orders a copy of My Bonnie by the Beat Brothers, which was Tony Sheridan and the Beatles. The Beatles had recorded this record when they were in Hamburg, you know, just months before that. And we'll definitely do an episode about Hamburg. Um, if you don't know about it, look it up. We'll we'll go into it. Mm-hmm. So this guy, Raymond Jones, Brian talks about him in his book, Cellar Full of Noise. Brian's ghostwritten autobiography. Derek Taylor pretty much wrote it, but um, it's attributed to Brian. He mentions Raymond Jones. He bolsters this theory. Um, The person who really was like, this is a lie, was Brian's assistant, Alistair Taylor, um, who said, no, you know, this guy never really existed. I just sort of needed a name for the order form because kids kept asking for this record. And NEMS had a policy that no matter what the record was, no matter how rare it was, you know, if they never heard of it, they would find it. So he was not not going to order it. So he just wrote down Raymond Jones and that was it. It's funny because I was sort of Googling around and I posted a picture today on our Instagram of Raymond Jones, the guy who says he was the guy who went in and ordered the record. And he certainly has a convincing story. I don't know if I buy it uh, because he doesn't have the record anymore and he doesn't have the signed copy of a seller hold noise that Brian allegedly sent to him. And I don't know, like he says he lost them. But to me, it's like that could be like your retirement. That could be the retirement for your grandchildren. Why'd you lose it? You would keep that. Yeah. I mean, you would put it in like a bank vault. I would think Mm -hmm. or put it somewhere really, really safe. Yeah. It's hard to know. I mean, yeah, he gives a lot of good details and he probably lived there, but we don't know if he just made up a story based on the facts that he'd heard. It came, this was like 2010, I think. So he had a long time to figure something out or just to rearrange certain details in his head to make himself fit into this story. And it's not like that's a super duper uncommon name. Like it's, it's not like John Smith, but it's still, it's Raymond Jones. Like we're not saying it's not true, but that's just one of the theories. And it's speculated that it's not completely true, but you can decide for yourself. However, even if that were true, even if Raymond Jones had come in on that date, asked for the record, Brian had already known about the Beatles. There was like no way he didn't because He carried in his record shop uh, the paper Mersey Beat, which was started in 1961, covered all the beat groups around Liverpool. That was really starting to skyrocket. Lots of groups were popping up all the time. So this guy called Bill Harry started a paper. And to cover all this stuff, Brian advertised in there for NEMS. And he wrote a column in Mersey Beat. So he started writing a column in August 1961. And it had already been selling out at NEMS. So Brian's like, I'm going to get in on this. So there's no way he wouldn't have read the pages and pages and pages of Beatles coverage in the paper already. No, of course um, not. He spent his life trying to, you know, stay on the pulse of the people who were buying his records and to find everything. He would have been very aware of these guys. And I mean, if you consider how close his record shop, and we posted a picture also of the NEMS building where Brian's record shop was. It was torn down, I think, in 2010, which sucks. 
but uh, I was there in 2008 and snapped a picture of it. So we posted it on our Instagram. So take a look. Um, but it's so close. It's, it's like a, a three minute walk from the cavern. So there's no way like he wasn't listening to the kids. They would come in and talk about the Beatles or, you know, whoever was playing up on Matthew Street. No way. No way. So one consistent account everybody agrees on, though, is that Brian went to the Beatles lunchtime show at the Cavern. Um, he went with Alistair Taylor and Bill Harry had arranged with the Cavern to get them in. They didn't have to stand in line. They went right down November 9th, 1961, saw them for the first time. Brian immediately fell in love with them. He loved their look. He loved, um, you know, their music. He loved the scene. He loved everything. In fact, in A Cellar Full of Noise, he says... I was immediately struck by their music, their beat, and their sense of humor on stage. And even afterwards, when I met them, I was struck again by their personal charm. And it was there, it was there that really it all started. Can you imagine having been, having seen that show at that point when they had just come back from these all-night fests in Hamburg when they were so tight, when they had this whole shtick worked out? They were probably just so hard rocking. They were in their leather. They were eating. They were smoking. They were telling jokes. If I could go back in time, that might be the day I'd go to. For sure. But I also love the idea of them and all of that. And then Brian in like his suit, <laughs> like coming in just super like, like she, she, like high class. And then there's the Beatles like spitting gum at each other on the stage. From all contemporary accounts, the cavern was disgusting. It was yeah. Sweat on the Sweaty. walls. It stunk. It was so close and airless and... Brian was just so pristine and, you know, full of elegance and class. Dignity personified, which the Beatles weren't yet. But I, you know, I think their wildness definitely attracted him, you know, from things we know about Brian's personal life. I'm sure he was excited by their raw energy. Yeah, Brian was definitely in, you know, he liked what they referred to at the time as rough trade. He was attracted to that sort of persona. And they were definitely tough guys, especially coming back from Hamburg. And, you know, Brian continued to go to Beatles shows, obviously. Um, he finally made them an offer to become their manager on December 10th, 1961. So this is all happening pretty quickly at the end of 61. Beginning of 62, January 24th, they signed a five-year contract. Brian, however, as the legend goes, and this is discussed in a cellar full of noise, he didn't sign the contract because he didn't want to keep them bound in case he couldn't do it because he'd never done anything like that before. Shit. Like, I mean, he worked at his dad's furniture store and then he convinced his father to let him have a little record shop in the corner of his furniture store that, you know, eventually grew into this like hub, but you know, he'd never managed a band before. He didn't know what the fuck he was doing. He just went on passion. He was a passionate guy. He'd never done this before. He was so besotted by the yeah. Beatles that he got it in his head that I can I can make them big. Of course I can. But it's not like he was a promoter. I mean, not even in the Liverpool scene. He'd never done it. Not at all. And we'll talk about that um, in a second because a lot of people love to, like, talk shit about Brian and his quote-unquote bad deals. And I'm going to try to restrain myself. I get very angry when I talk about this stuff. <laughs> but I'm going to try to try to hand it um, but yeah, I mean, the fact that he didn't sign the contract in the beginning, it's like he knew it. He was very, you know, in tune with himself and his limitations. You know, once they started gaining some traction at the end of 62 in October, um, they did sign another five-year contract, which if you think ahead five years to when that contract would have ended, it would have ended very shortly after Brian's death. People say it's part of the contributing factors of, of Brian's death. If it was, I don't know. For me, when I think about Brian, uh, what the Beatles would have made it, 
you know, without Brian, I don't think they would have for a lot of reasons. I think if you look at uh, Tune In, which we consider the Bible, uh, Mark Lewis and it's God dot mm-hmm. com. Mm-hmm. Um, he, you know, he says in Tune In, uh, the Beatles, when they came back from Hamburg, they were fine. You know, like you said, Erica, they were, you know, really raucous. They were really tight. They had this like shtick, but they weren't really... I mean, they weren't skyrocketing. It didn't, it didn't have a huge impact on their career back home and they really weren't writing. They weren't really, they didn't have much momentum. So Brian, when he came on the scene, that was kind of the kick they needed. Paul got like a factory job or something like that. And they were all considering what I'm going to do next. Cause they just had this, this huge, crazy thing in Hamburg. They came back, but what do you do after that? They didn't really get great notoriety. So what they needed was somebody who could push that along. And they were not the sort of people that would know how to do that, of course. And if you consider also Hamburg was kind of clusterfuck, like it blew up in their faces. You know, George got kicked out because he was underage and Paul and Pete almost burned down a movie theater with a lighted condom on the (laughs) wall. Like it was a real mess. So, I mean, to have this new guy, Brian, who they had known also as, you know, a businessman, they knew his family, his business people. As we talked about in Egypt Station, the Egypt Station episode, Paul's dad had bought a piano from Brian's dad um, at NEMS in the original store up near Everton in Liverpool. So this guy who has a lot of panache, he has a lot of flair. Brian was a theater guy. When he came in and swooped in and said, okay, boys, we're going to take you and we're going to tailor your image. We're going to tighten your act. It's going to be great. You know, his vision was really what sort of took them to the next level. It was night and day. If you consider the cavern leathers, which I'm not complaining because cavern leathers were uh, amazing. Gorgeous. But taking them out of that and putting them in suits, we can't compare the two. We can't forget that the Beatles didn't totally buy into it at first, especially Paul. Paul seemed to have kind of a resentment toward the whole thing. Even their first meeting when Brian called them together for the first time, Paul didn't show up. He was like an at least an hour or two late. And when Brian asked him where he was, he said, I was in the bath. Shows you how little respect Paul had for Brian. From the very beginning, he didn't really trust it. There was something that he was not happy about. And I think that plays out later, even post Brian's death. A lot of people talk about Brian's relationship with John, which was obviously a big piece of the Beatles story, which we're going to talk about. But Brian's relationship with Paul, I think from the Paul side is super not talked about. And it's pretty dramatic. And it's something that makes me angry. I know, I know, I know, I know. And I love Paul. I mean, you guys all know how I feel about Ringo, whatever. Ringo's not even part of this, really. But, (laughs) um, and by the way, interjecting, uh, neither here nor there, but by the end of the episode, I'm going to say something nice about Ringo because I owe it to some friends and I'll explain later. Oh my God. Um, Oh my God. Yeah, I know. I know. I know it's historic. Um, but, but, you know, Brian's relationship with Paul was very fraught. Paul has said himself, he's never liked to be told what to do by anybody ever. So of course, you know, I can imagine when Brian comes in and says, you're going to do this, you're going to do this, and you get your recording contract, you're going to tour, blah, 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 whatever. Yeah, I can see Paul being like, uh, who the fuck are you? And I think there was a little more to it too, though. I feel like Brian had a connection with John and Paul seemed to get jealous when there was somebody in the picture competing for that one-on-one close connection with John. He was, I think, the same with Stu. I think that was why he had such a problem with Stu, was that he took John away from him on an emotional level. And 
Brian did as well. That's a really good point because you get into, you know, in 1963, of course, we have John going away with Brian to Spain. They went on a holiday together, uh, which was super talked about in Liverpool, still talked about to this day, what happened in Spain. But um, I think that also Paul was jealous on two levels, probably three levels, that John was getting that FaceTime with their manager and Paul wanted to, you know, assert himself. Um, And also that, you know, John was cozying up and sort of making himself the leader and, you know, having probably a lot of business discussions also with Brian and creating this persona for himself as the figurehead of the Beatles, which Paul, I think from the beginning, sort of fancied himself as or had a goal to be which later on, after Brian died, he would really kind of go after. Good for him. It's great. Worked out really well. Yeah. yeah, good for good for you, Paul. Yeah, it really worked out for you. Now I'm going to start getting really salty about Paul. You know, I love I love Paul so much, but this is the one topic where I get really pissy about him. <laughs> They're human and they did shitty things and Paul did some shitty shit. Mm-hmm. <sighs> we take a deep breath. But we had a question, segueing. Uh, we had a question from a listener. Her name's Erin. Hi, Erin. Uh, she asked us, can you all discuss whether John viewed Epi as a father figure type? This is a great yeah. uh, discussion topic when talking about John because John had a really fucked up time with all the father figures in his life. Um, and we'll for sure discuss this in a future episode. In fact, we're going to have our very good friend, Jude Kessler, on our next episode, talking about John Lennon and sorting out some truths from not so truthy truths yep. um, for his birthday. It's going to be great. Um, but basically, so John, his father, Alf, was a piece of shit. Um, he went away when John was a kid. He sort of schlepped him around before that. And then he showed up when John was famous. He made like a record. Do you remember that record? Yes, it's like a vaudeville record. He does sound quite a bit like John. It's kind of creepy. But yeah, he tried to cash in on his son's fame. He sucks. Yeah, he's a piece of shit. Yeah, he sucks. Uh, Julia, John's mother, who was only in his life till he was 15, she was tragically killed. But uh, Julia, she had other boyfriends after she and Alf split up, but they didn't really last that long. And then she finally married a guy called John Dykins, who John didn't like. And even if he did like him, he wasn't living with them at that time. He was living with his Aunt Mimi and Uncle George, you know, not too far away, but still he didn't really spend that much time over there. And then Uncle George died. So he was really fucked. Like, he didn't really have any strong father figures in his life so was brian a father figure to him i would say yeah what would you say i'd say so i mean the age difference wasn't really that great but if you think about generational divide being at world war ii brian was before he was kind of in that greatest generation side of things Mm -hmm. and the beatles starting with john in 1940 were on that other side and i think it was really split up by who was forced to go to war and who was not And it was actually at the cutoff of 1940, people born in 1940, I think, where the mandatory service was discontinued. So they had a very different experience growing up as teenagers, and they didn't have to grow up as fast. They weren't adults as fast. So just a couple of years, it really was. It really was a huge leap in maturity and in the culture of how you would act at the age that you were. So Brian was just, he acted older. He was, he was dignified. He was elegant. He liked he didn't have the accent. Yeah. He didn't speak with a Scouse accent. He liked the finer things in life, theater, opera. He was in business. So there were so many reasons why he might have seemed much older to John than he actually was. So yeah, yeah. I think so. And he also was stable. I mean, he did things for them that nobody else did. He took it upon himself to, as their manager, 
take care of them professionally and I'm sure emotionally as well, especially for John, because they did have a deep connection. Isn't that just like the relationship between a parent and a child prodigy? The parent takes care of the management, the parent takes care of the physical and emotional comfort and allows the child to focus on their craft. So in trying to answer the original question, yes, I think that there was a parental type of relationship between John and Brian. I think it was reciprocal. I think even in the contract, it said like, you know, his terms were basically, you have to be my friend, you know, which is. That makes me sad. Sad. I know. <laughs> I'm just going to say that. It's like a little sad. I know it is a little tragic. It makes me love him a lot, but he did have some sort of provision in there. They were his boys. You know, he was going to take care of them. He made it so that they could focus on the music and he could do the management. He was rarely in the studio. When he was there, they all were sort of like, why the fuck are you doing here? I never thought about it in terms of a war because Brian did. He was in the service for a hot second. I mean, he didn't stay in the service. But yeah, I'm sure they saw him as this sort of worldly guy. I mean, he had lived in London. He went to RADA for a second. He had been in and out of schools all around. So he was definitely more traveled than a lot of them were. And he was, he, yeah, he was dignified. So I, I could see him as a father figure. We talk about John and Brian's relationship. It was so complicated. And so many people have so much to say about it, especially after that trip to Spain. There's so many accounts. There was even a movie. Did you did you ever see The Hours in the Times? No. Was it about the Spain trip? Uh, yes. I saw oh. it once. I think it's from like, I want to say like 1991. And it stars, um, okay, so it stars Ian Hart as John, and Ian Hart played John in Backbeat. But you might know him better as playing Voldemort in the first Harry Potter movie. He was queer? Yes, 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 yes. Yeah. Oh my god! But yeah, The Hours of the Times, I think, is all about that Spain trip. And that sort of takes a real salacious look at their relationship. But, you know, John, he sort of liked to play with it. He liked to say that they went to Spain and Brian was checking out the boys. And John would say, like, he liked to quote unquote play faggy. Um, John said it, not me, don't at me. And uh, say to Brian, oh, do you like that one? What do you think about that one? And he was very aware that Brian was gay. And Brian had told him and he made no bones about it. The only account, and take this with a grain of salt, that anything happened is from Pete Shotton, who was John's best friend. And Pete wrote a book. This has been way out of, pre- out of press for a long, long time. I've never seen it in print. So Pete alleges that when he came back, he was sort of talking to John about what happened. And he was teasing him and saying like, oh, you know... Uh, you and Brian, I heard that you, some stuff happened, blah, blah, blah. And John was like, oh, not you too. I can't believe you're like busting my balls over this. Um, but John's like, well, if you want to know, something did happen. And so Pete was like, tell me everything. John, according to Pete, according to John, Brian made passes at John for days. And then John told him to quote unquote, stick it up me Austin. Was that a good <laughs> That was, that was pretty good. good. Yeah. Thanks. But Brian was like, no, no, I'm not into that. Because Brian, I think Brian was a bottom. Yes, um, yeah. I think he's a bottom. Yeah. Brian's like, that's not what I like to do. And so John said that he let Brian give him a hand job. That's, that's what Pete said John told him. I don't know. And when John addressed it, what he said was, I was on holiday with Brian Epstein in Spain. And where the rumors went around that he and I were having a love affair. Well, it was almost a love affair, but not quite. It was never consummated, but it was a pretty intense relationship. So handjob then? Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> I don't know. Maybe maybe they did a Spanish circle jerk? A Spanish circle jerk? Yeah. Is that 
yeah, yeah. Not like they, not like they did in Liverpool, like no. a Liverpool circle jerk. No, I, I the Liverpool shuffle. Um, <laughs> sorry, oh <my> God. <laughs> I love this podcast so much. I, I don't think the point of whether they had a relationship was like whether John gave Brian a handy in Spain. Like, I don't, I don't care about the details. I think what he's saying was that there was such an intense emotional relationship between the two of them. Maybe it was a little sexual. Maybe it was fully sexual once. Who who knows? But I think the point is, is that it was so intense for them that, you know, maybe John, who, you know, never thought about having a relationship with a man, maybe he considered it because of the strength of their connection. Yeah, well, certainly there were bisexual rumors about John going around in the 70s, too, once he was in the Andy Warhol scene. And I think there were rumors about him and Elton John, Mick Jagger. You know, um, men who are a lot more fluid with their sexuality. And I totally see John as somebody who would have experimented if he wanted to. I don't think he would have been afraid of it, you know, especially when he was older and he kind of grew out of that, you know, macho, scouser sort of persona. If anybody could have broken through that persona, though, I think it could have been Brian at that time. If you consider what kind of relationship they would have to have for Brian to be like, hey, John, do you want to go to Spain with me? Like, I'm more interested in the lead up, how Brian came to ask him. Because um, John had just had Julian. Like, he was born two weeks before this trip. Yeah, so, that's another I'm, story altogether. But uh, That's so oh my another God. story. Oh, my God. I can't even. <laughs> and let's <laughs> not forget that Brian took care of the whole Cynthia thing, too. He put them up in his flat. He kind of hid them out. Like, he made that okay, he took care of them. And then they were like, hey, let's go to Spain. Like, she's, yeah, whatever. She's fine. Cynthia's good. Let's go to Spain. Let's go to some bullfights. <laughs> let's eat some tapas. It'll be great. Spanish circle jerk. If we end up giving each other hand jobs, that's okay. <laughs> this, is, <laughs> this is an actual reenactment um, from the Hours and the Times. Anyway, but so, yeah. So the Spain trip, obviously, is super... Super like a hot topic. Um, John later, I think he came back for Paul's and Paul had a 21st birthday party. This would have been like, you know, June, obviously, of 63. And uh, everybody got super shwasted. And I think it was Bob Wooler who was like, oh, did you go off on holiday with your girlfriend, Brian, whatever. And John like punched his fucking lights out. He beat the fucking and shit out of him. He did. He did. Which is ironical, you know, because Bob Wooler was rumored to be gay. Allegedly, he was gay. Mm-hmm. So... Wooler, come on, don't do this. Well, if you think about it, that's the person, if you're John and anything happened, even emotionally, that's the guy you're going to beat up because that's the guy that you probably think has the best insight into how you're feeling. True, true. And Wooler probably had good gaydar. Yeah. So, but that was such a mess. And that's another thing fucking Brian had to manage. You know, he had to manage this whole like newspaper shitstorm about John beating up Bob Wooler. Could you imagine all the things that Brian was doing? I mean, he was contacting record companies. He was doing his best to, like, get these guys into some kind of shape where they could look presentable on stage. You know, he was working with all their personalities. He was trying to find auditions. He was doing so much legwork. And he was running them. like he had so much to do. Think about it. He took this on as a side hustle. Yeah. And then, of course, he gets a call in the morning and he's like, John did fucking what? And he's like, I got to deal with this shit now. Thanks, John. Yeah, wasn't he just done with the whole pregnancy thing? He just dealt with that. And now John's going to go get drunk and punch out like one of the most prominent people, you know, on the Liverpool music scene. Like, why not? That sounds great. (sighs) John, John Lennon. God, (laughs) 
obviously it's you know with the Beatles got going to had more shit to do so he ended up delegating some of the Beatles stuff and that's where the merchandising comes in Okay, so we take a deep breath because we're going to talk about cell tab. Okay. I say cell tab. Is that how you say it? I say cell tape, but it's I don't tape. I don't know. Cell tape. Okay, so this is where you get the Brian's quote unquote bad deals, and people love to fucking bring this up, and including including the Beatles. And I'm going to read you a quote from Paul in the anthology. I'm going to take a deep breath. Paul says, if Brian had one failing, it was that he wasn't astute enough. And as we just fucking said, no shit, Paul. He knew it. He knew he had never done this before. Like, he didn't know what he was doing. He still did a really good job, you know, in a big picture sense. Did he do everything right? No. But neither did you, Paul. You think you're so good? I take issue with the word astute, actually. I think that Brian was extremely astute. Well, I think if you're thinking astute as in, like, smart, yeah, for sure. He was, like, super clever and no, smart and I'm, shit. I'm thinking more, like, prescient. He had the sense of what needed to be done. Maybe vision. he didn't. He had the vision. He had the experience. He saw things and they happened in a way that they never happened for any other group like this before. That is, to me, or that anyone. is being that is being astute. What he didn't have is any institutional knowledge about how to make these happen or any real experience dealing with these record labels on the level of manager. No, he didn't have that because no one ever had that before and he wasn't a practice manager, but astute? Screw you, Paul. He was astute. He had the vision. You go, girl. I agree. I totally agree. And keep in mind, they had had like a parade of like shit managers before that. You know, they just got out of a a thing with Alan Williams. What did Alan Williams do for you, Paul? Mm, not a whole lot. Um, he did some stuff, but we're not going to go there right now. I think Paul liked it because of the control thing. I don't think yeah. he wanted somebody who knew what he was doing in a way. Paul has a way worse quote from the anthology, which is Brian did do some lousy deals and he put us into some long-term slave contracts, which I'm still dealing with. He said this in the anthology. That's what, 1995? Yeah. Like, come mm -hmm. on, Paul. Slave, long-term slave contracts that you're still dealing with. Um, no. And he specifically cites his 15% credit on yesterday. But I'm like, I'm trying to think it through. How, what does that have to do with Brian other than Brian got a cut and Brian negotiated the royalty terms. But I think Paul's just super bitter because he still wants it as McCartney Lennon. Of course, he was the one who sold all the Beatles catalog to Michael Jackson. So let's yeah. not talk about being astute or, you know, getting into bad business deals. That that was I mean, not a good idea. I mean, we could even just talk about Apple for an hour, which we will talk about Apple. But the whole Apple fiasco, a lot of that was Paul because he brought in all his peeps and he was like, oh, I'm a, I'm a businessman now. No, Paul. No, Paul. No. Sit down sit down <laughs> anyway and i mean george was a dick too in the anthology you know he he said you know brian didn't get us very good deals on anything for years emi were giving us one old penny between us for every single and two shillings for every album and he also alleged uh the in the anthology that brian's dad was the one that gave away the beatles merchandising rights i can't find anything to corroborate that i think george sort of like that warped in his mind over time the thing with cell tab is that when Brian delegated it to somebody else, he took it to his his lawyer, who took it to a guy he knew um, called Nick Byrne. That was the guy who negotiated the terms and all that. But like, I don't know that Brian's dad was ever involved. That doesn't make no. sense to me. But yeah, so the initial deal, and it was kind of shitty. Even John was like, you know, the business end, Brian ripped us off on a cell tab. The initial terms were that the Beatles would get 10% of the merch profits. And this was 
to officially license the Beatles likeness, their name, everything, to create everything that you see from sweatshirts to record cases to Beatle bath bubbles that we saw on Facebook. (laughs) (laughs) So funny. You know, everything there. So I think in 2015, it was estimated that the band lost around $100 million in merchandising because of the low percentage and the quote-unquote Brian's bad deals. Brian did renegotiate after he saw that this was super-duper profitable, and he didn't realize, he's like, I did a shit thing. I'm going to try to make good on this. So in uh, 64, summer of 64, he renegotiated for a 49% share of the merch profits. But to be honest, it didn't really make a big deal because it, it got caught up in the courts and they didn't really see any money from merch is what it sort of boils down to. Okay. Here's why people need to shut the fuck up. <laughs> to put it mildly. Like you say, Erica, before the Beatles, there was nothing like this, not even Elvis, you know, and if you consider Colonel Tom Parker, he was a real jerk. He was not astute. You know, he saw Elvis as a cash cow. He would sign Elvis up to do anything. Brian didn't like Colonel Tom. He met him and he was like, this guy does not have his client's best interest at heart. He's not making good deals on Elvis's behalf. All he wants is to look out for himself. And Elvis didn't have merchandise like the Beatles did. He had some, but he didn't have it to the crazy, like, print your name on everything extent. Also, Brian was dealing with a lot of unauthorized third-party merchandise and trying to stop that and sending mm-hmm. out D&Ds. And it was just a lot. Brian also did a lot of things that could have been more lucrative, but probably it would have ended up in a terrible spot for them beyond just a merchandise. You know, when they first came to New York, they were offered a ton of money to play stadium shows. He turned it down. Instead, they played Carnegie Hall, which was a way better situation for them. And they got more mileage out of it. Also at Sullivan, you know, which we'll talk about. And Erica's got a really awesome story for us when that rolls around the February. Yes, yay. But, you know, he negotiated the contract on that and got them instead of one performance, he got them four. So did he lose that merch money? Yes. But how much did he make? That is where I'm annoyed with the Beatles comments and with the whole reputation that he has. As we were just talking about, it never happened before. I don't think that anybody would have ever projected that merchandise would have exploded in the way it did. I mean, especially if you're coming from England. I mean, America is a much more capitalist materialistic society and you know that's where a lot of these these uh, products came to be they were american products they were not british products he didn't know that so if john and paul are comparing you know a new group like let's say it was like there was the 90s so let's say they were they were looking at you know new kids on the block that a lot of people were saying were like the second coming of the Beatles for the way that they were merchandised and the way that that teenage girls at that time were obsessed with them. So Mm -hmm. let's let's say they were looking at them and looking at their merch deals and looking at the kind of cuts they got and they say, oh yeah, Brian stiffed us, look what you're getting now. But you can't compare it because they never would have gotten the kind of deals that they got had somebody not done that first. And that first person was Brian. Yeah, he was a pioneer. He set the standard. He didn't know that he could have done more because nobody ever did this before. I mean, artists at the time when the Beatles signed, they would get, like the whole group would get like a penny per every record that was sold. They get nothing. They would get nothing. And that's why people who only had a hit or two would probably just kind of go back to their day job very quickly once things didn't work out because they did not make money doing this. He was a pioneer. The first time of anything has kinks in it. And unfortunately, these were probably pretty expensive kinks for the Beatles. But I think they had quite a bit of money and I think they did all right. And without Brian, we would not have the state of music merchandising that we do now. He definitely sets precedence, even for the 60s. You know, you look at American groups like the Monkees, who were also highly commoditized. 
that's all down to Brian. Like he, he made those mistakes. Other people didn't have to not even, you know, just with merch, but with his contract, his first contract, he agreed to 10% of the Beatles. And then only if they reached, you know, an income threshold, would he take more? He was never out to make the money. So I'm sure with this, he's sort of like, okay, yeah, like 10% is fair. Like we'll take that. And very innocently because yeah, nobody had done it before. Yeah. He went back to try to negotiate, but, um, you know, when he saw it, what happened? He didn't just sort of sit idly by and say, oh, well, we lost all that money. Like, I guess that's over. You know, he tried. He he tried. And he had a vision. And merch was in his infancy. Who would have thought that that was even something that would have taken off in that way? I mean, you never had a group like the Beatles before that were known for not only their music, but their personalities. You wouldn't have had the same kind of thing with Elvis because there were four of them and they had different personalities. And, you know, you couldn't have the flip your wig game with one dude. Yeah. You know, you had to. Yeah. Right. You know, having four people makes the potential for for this kind of merch to just explode. So let us know what you think. I I mean, I'm up for debate. Um, I will take anybody down, though. Just a fair warning. (sighs) Try her. Try her. Try me, at me, just do it. <laughs> so anyway, moving on to one of our last topics about Brian. Um, sadly, because I could talk about Brian all day, but of course, Brian, as we know, had a very tragic and untimely death. Um, he died August 27th, 1967. That was actually a bank holiday weekend. Uh, the 27th was a Sunday, but that weekend he went to his country home in Sussex. He invited two friends, Peter Brown, who was his assistant, and Jeff Ellis, who was the chief executive of NEMS, for a little holiday. He'd also invited uh, some what they call rent boys, which are basically prostitutes, call boys, mm-hmm. to come and hang out and party. He'd also invited um, his secretary and her friend Lulu, the singer, but they couldn't make it. So he was actually, you know, actually expecting a big party, but that didn't really happen. The rent boys didn't turn up. So Brian got pretty despondent. He sort of didn't want to hang out with Peter Brown and Jeff Ellis because he saw them all the time and he thought it'd be pretty boring. So his thought was, okay, it's Friday night. I'll go back to London. Clubs will still be open. I could hang out there for a bit and then I'll come back to Sussex tomorrow. So Friday night, he is like, peace. He leaves. And funnily, the boys actually turned up and they partied with Jeff and uh, (laughs) uh, Peter. So I'm sure that was really fun. Brian goes back to London. He calls it an early night because the club's closed and he talked to peter the next morning and he said i will catch the train peter offered to pick him up the train station he's like okay you know i'll i won't drive i'll catch train he was pretty drunk he'd been drunk since the day before and he never turned up never went back to sussex um the next morning his housekeepers hadn't heard from him for two days his car was out front they weren't really sure where he was his bedroom door was locked um and they called Alistair Taylor and a couple of the people and they came over, broke down the door and Brian was in bed. He passed away. It's really tragic because there's so much debate about what happened and why people say, was it suicide? Was it an overdose? You know, you have to consider what Brian had going on in his life. He was sort of in a period of emotional turmoil. He'd just come out of a psychiatric hospital. He had several stays, but he had just come out of another one. His father had just passed away the month before. He was very, very close to his parents. His mother, Queenie, was his whole life. She had been coming down to London from Liverpool to stay with him, spend time with him. 
She was actually going to be down, I think, the following week to stay with Brian before he died. And also his relationship with the Beatles was really strained. His contract was coming up for renewal and there was talk in the Beatles themselves about maybe we won't renew it, particularly from Paul, mm-hmm. who played a lot of head games with Brian. I think there's a story about how Paul sort of invited and disinvited Brian to his birthday party. Um, he was sort of just jerking him around, um, being an asshole. Yep. He was. Per, he was. Per usual with Paul. Whoa. And, no, well, I mean with Brian. With Paul and Brian. They never had a, a great relationship from anything you can see. I mean, they didn't hate each other like openly, but ugh, it wasn't that great with him. No, it wasn't as close as, you know, obviously like Brian and John. Um, so I don't know, Erica, what do you think? Do you think Brian committed suicide? I don't think he did. And I think that if that was a spur of the moment thing, I don't think it was a long-term planned event. I do feel like, you know, I don't know, you know, that much about this, but what people do say is that, you know, when you finally do get serious about it, people make plans and they start giving things away and they start putting their affairs in order. Mm-hmm. from what Brian's character seemed to have been, if it was a long-term plan in any way, he would have made provisions for especially the Beatles and Scylla Black and his mother. Like He would have done things to take care of people before he, he left them. Yeah, but I agree. It may have been in the spur of the moment he chose to take a lot more pills than he should have because he wanted to end it. We don't know that. Right. What do you think? Yeah, it's hard. It's a hard call to make. And it's frustrating because even when you like Google Brian, it like it comes up as his death is, you know, accidental overdose of sleeping pills, whatever. But then it says like manner of death suicide. And it's like you can't make that. The coroner didn't even rule the suicide. Um, I agree, especially for Brian, who is so meticulous with his records. He didn't leave any provisions for anybody. He had a will, but it was way out of date. Um, he didn't leave a note. Um, one of the things that Peter Brown uh, talks about in his book, The Love You Make, and full Gross. disclosure, f- I was going to say full disclosure, that book is super salacious, don't believe half of the shit that's in there, take it all with a grain of salt. Um, but he claims that he had found two of Brian's suicide notes. But these were from like years before. Brian suffered from a lot of depression and anxiety. Um, he did take a lot of medication. He, like I said, he was in and out of psychiatric hospitals. He he had he had a lot of demons. He really, really did. So these might have been legit suicide notes. I don't know. Um, but Peter said that he confronted Brian with the notes, and Brian was like, no, these are old. Don't worry about them. I'm fine. For me, that says if these did exist, then Brian would have left one because he had already written them previously. But, I mean, like you say, who knows? Spur of the moment, he could have just, you know, decided – to do it, I but I really have a hard time believing that. I think more likely it was a buildup of the drugs in his system and mixed with alcohol. It was just sort of like the straw that broke the camel's back. Depression is is certainly not logical, especially if he got hit with a, a really hard bout of depression at that moment. You know, we don't know what he did, but I don't think that overall he his long term goal was to do that, even if it was in the moment. I agree. I mean, some people say like he took sleeping pills to go to sleep and then he woke up in the middle of the night and, you know, we've all done it where we wake up in the night. We're like, oh, I haven't slept yet. (laughs) I do that all the time, Mm -hmm. you know, and he may have thought, oh, I haven't slept. Let me just grab some pills. And he took too many. Like that's totally possible as well. Regardless, the coroner ruled, you know, that it was an accidental and cautious self overdose of Carbitrol, which is which is a sleeping pill. Um, But it just it was a buildup over time, really, that caused it. 
you know, it's tragic. It's really, really tragic. It was a really sad cap on a, on a tragic personal life of Brian. And I just want to mention really quick, because we're talking about a sensitive topic. I just want to give the number for the National Suicide Prevention Line in case you need it or somebody else needs it. 1-800-273-8255. Just, just putting it out there. Because this is this is some deep shit. This is some hard shit. Yeah. Don't be um, afraid to ask for help if you need help. Never. For sure. Don't. And so so after Brian died, like I said in the beginning, I personally think it led to the Beatles falling apart. Like they could not get their act together. No, because Paul took over. Paul decided that he was just going to implement his visions, which were not thought out. They were not business ideas. And there we get Magical Mystery Tour. Yeah, exactly. This isn't a reenactment of Paul getting the phone call that Brian's dead. Oh, no, Brian died. Oh, that's so sad. Uh, I need to make a phone call. Hello, yes, uh, it's a go on MMT. Then I don't know, that was a bad accent. But yeah, he <laughs> Paul was like, Oh, good, all my Technicolor dreams can come fucking true. I can do this stupid film that Brian didn't like the idea of he didn't, he didn't like that at all. You know, it was like sort of a four headed monster and they cut off their body, you know, the thing that told them what to do. And Paul really saw it as his chance. But it was just it was never going to happen. It sort of led to the detriment of the whole thing. The infighting. George and Ringo, by this time, were already pissed anyway, because they were basically sidemen on Sgt. Pepper, which is Paul's vision. And various Beatles brought in people into the fold who really just tried to screw the Beatles over, like Magic Alex, mm-hmm. I'm thinking Alan Klein, you know, just different people who didn't have their interests at heart like Brian did. Yeah, and I think on top of that, I don't think that John could deal with what Paul was trying to do. I think he could take some level of management from Brian. I think Brian knew how to handle him and he had a relationship like that. But John was pissed and contemptuous when Paul tried to take over. So what was going to happen? You know, they couldn't work it out together as as equals. John was getting really into drugs at the time. So I think he just kind of checked out and basically told Paul to fuck off. I totally agree. And John, it's so sad to me when you watch the tape of, you know, the Beatles, the, the footage of the interviewer asking them about Brian's death. And John just looks like he's been hit by a truck. You know, he just looks so blinded. Like he just has no idea what the fuck is going on. You know, Paul is a lot more diplomatic, which is Paul anyway. He's charming. He's sort of smoothing things over. But John is just sort of like, you know, we've only just heard. It's really sad. And they say that shit about the Maharishi, like Brian's not in pain. Whatever. Bullshit. But, you know, bullshit, exactly. But, you know, but John is obviously, he's lost this huge presence in his life, like the stabilizing male presence. With the exception of Paul, really, every time that he had really given his heart to somebody, they had a tragic ending. That is so fucking sad. That was right at the time when he was developing a relationship with Yoko. Because you remember Cynthia went to India with them. Um, right. Not Yoko, but, you know, he's writing to Yoko and everything. But he had so much loss. I don't, I can't imagine how he wouldn't have turned to heavy drugs at that time. You know, like, it's so yeah. sad. And if you think about, too, like, Yoko, she's a, still a very, very strong woman. You know, and she also took the business reins in the 70s when John became a house husband. She Mm -hmm. was just very sort of strong minded. I can definitely see how she could have also helped to fill that void left by Brian. Yeah, because he called her mother, if you think about that. I mean, he did. Yeah. Which actually going back to the question that we had from our listener about Brian and the father figure thing. I think that the way he viewed Yoko, who was, I think, two or three years older than him also, maybe that helps us get to yes on that question that, you know, he really did intertwine his 
love relationships on different levels with the need for parental connection. Yeah, I think that's very valid. Because I think John in general, and maybe this is true for most people who grow up without a parent or parents, is you sort of spend your life trying to fill that void in some way, which is explains why some people turn to drugs, some people turn to like sex, some people turn to just trying to find their their partner in life, yeah. which, you know, John, I think probably did all of that. Yeah. Oh, man. Well, this has been amazing. Yeah. <laughs> we ended it on a uh, kind of a downer note. But if you want to learn more about Brian, um, I do recommend there's a great biography by Ray Coleman. It's a little outdated. I, I don't love everything in it, but it's a really like comprehensive view of Brian's life um, called The Man That Made the Beatles or the man who made the Beatles. And there's also our friend Vivek Tiwari wrote a graphic novel. It's a sort of a dramatization of Brian's life. And it's a really quick read. It's very beautiful, lovely illustrations. So check those out. It's great. And it's going to be made into a limited run series or miniseries quite soon. Yeah, I think I'm bravo. I think Bravo still has picked that up. So that's super exciting. Yes. Can we see? There needs to be more Brian on TV. I mean, there just, there just has to be. I just wish they had done something 10 years ago when Benedict Cumberbatch could have been Brian. Oh, I can't, no. Really? We can't talk like, about this either. How do they oh, not no, no, do yeah. that? that? No, this is, that was my dream. That is my dream of dreams. Every, okay, and everybody listening, go and Google uh, Brian Epstein right now and you'll see pictures of Benedict Cumberbatch come up. It's like God is taunting me because that would be literally the best thing that ever happened to me because I love Benedict. He's, we're mm. going to get married. He's going to get married. It's yeah. lovely. Another great Brian so. depiction in media, and there aren't a lot, but in the ITV made-for-TV movie Scylla about Scylla Black. Yeah. A wonderful That's... actor plays Brian. He he. I think he does get some of the emotional depth of Brian, and it goes through the, the time right before and after he passed away, where um, not only were the Beatles thinking about leaving him, but Scylla Black was also thinking about leaving him, and he, she was really the other major star in his stable yeah and like somebody the love he, of his yeah, life he yeah. had such a connection with Scylla and another thing I will just mention about Brian because I love Scylla and we're going to talk about Scylla later Sc yes we're gonna have a whole Scylla yes. <laughs> Scylla was you know she was known in Britain as being one of the most popular tv presenters of all time Brian set that up Brian yeah put her there and so if it wasn't for Brian, Scylla wouldn't have been who everybody knew and loved her to be. Yes, because Brian had that vision. Because she was such a natural on stage. Brian recognized that and was like, she should host. And, you know, the rest is history. Oh, I just got chills. I love mm. thinking about Brian and Scylla so I much. Know. And that, seriously, check out the ITV miniseries. It's so, so good. So good. And I think Erica and I both have a really high bar for miniseries and biopics. <laughs> yeah. And this one is, I, I drunk watched it last weekend and I put a lot of it on our, uh, on our story on Instagram because <laughs> whatever. But yeah, the Brian is, he's, he will break your heart and he is so good. Oh, yeah. Oh my God. And that's a perfect segue, actually, into my favorite Beatles-related uh, thing of the week. I was curious. I was reading something, and they were talking about the demo of Love of the Loved. It may have even been in uh, TuneIn. I was reading a little bit of that last week. And Mark Lewis was talking about the demo the Beatles did of Love of the Loved, which obviously became one of Scylla's big songs. And I realized I'd never heard of it, or never heard the demo. So I went on YouTube and found it. 
And it's so different. It's so different. It reminds me of um, like Besame Mucho, like that sort of like latin Yeah, he's temple. totally putting on his Paul Ramon. Oh, he latin is. Latin lover slash Elvisy sort of voice. It's hilarious. But I, yeah, it's so different. It's so different. And I, it was left off the anthology for some reason. And I don't know why, because it would have been so perfect to include on that. It's in the DECA editions, right? Didn't he do that at DECA? Yeah, he did that in the DECA editions for sure. Which is why they didn't get it. I'm kidding. <laughs> I know I, you're I, you're experiencing little Paul hate right now. I'm sorry. I am. And oh, before we get off, my favorite thing. And by the way, we'll share the the link to the demo of Love of the Loved, and we'll share Silla's version too. Because if you haven't heard it, it's really fun. So good. Very 60s, like mod bopping around Carnaby Street kind of tune. But I need to say, and I sing about Ringo. <laughs> For <laughs> our friends, this is really hard. No, I'm kidding. Uh, for our friends, uh, Sarah and Coral Schmidt, they met Ringo uh, before Ringo's show in St. Louis. And we posted their picture on Instagram. And they told me I could do that if I said something nice about Ringo on the podcast. Oh, so, I love them. I love them. <laughs> I know. They really held my hand to the fire here. I would like to say that I think it's super nice that. Because Ringo did not have to like meet them. He wasn't doing a meet and greet at this particular show, but somebody had went went to Ringo and said, "Hey, two big fans, and they are huge fans. He's been Coral's favorite Beatles since the Beatles started, um, came to America." So they went to Ringo and said, "They're coming to your show. Will you meet them?" And he said, "Yes." And I think that's very nice. That's really it's nice. Very, very sweet of him. Also, I really like Ringo's first album. I like the Ringo album a lot. So there you go. Two two nice things I said about Ringo. Wow. I also like Ringo Rama. So there. There's oh like my god! Nice I think we could make you a Ringo fan. Let's go. Oh no! Let's give us a year. Let's give it a year. I'm, just, I'm gonna take on this challenge. Oh my god! All right, <laughs> we'll check in a year from now. I'll make a note. <laughs> I don't think it's gonna happen. Anyway, but there you go, Sarah and Coral, the three of you. Nice. Aw. All right, my thing, I'm so obsessed with this this week. And, you know, we're talking about Brian, and we actually mentioned this before is that we saw this week on social media this <laughs> advertisement for Beatles Bubble Bath, um, officially called Wild Mild Beetle Beetle Bubble Bath. And. <laughs> It, it is the craziest commercial. Like it looks sort of like like a like Andy Griffith show or something. Like it's done in yes. like total like cheap black and white TV film, and this you know kind of cute mod blonde teenager is in the street and her crazy wild grandma drives up in an open jeep and she's this huge Beatles fan and you know she's like I didn't know you liked the Beatles and grandma was like yeah and I'm gonna go take a bath and add some personality to my bath with the wild mild <laughs> beetle beetle bubble bath okay so I you gotta see she's, it. We're gonna post this. I love this. She's wearing like a fucking sweatshirt that says Beetle Beetles. What's up with a Beetle Beetle? That's so. I have, I have a lot of questions. Yeah, be <laughs> Beetle Beetle. How can you be wild and mild at the same time? I know. And and where are John and George? Were there not John and George bubble baths? Yeah, like just Paul and Ringo? They only came in Paul and Ringo. What? what? Like, what's happening? Okay, and then it cuts to this girl <laughs> in the bathtub, like. Looking real sexy, talking about how she added personality to her bath using these beetle beetle mild wild bubble baths. There's a lot in it, and I, I've watched it probably like 30 times this week. Like I just keep watching it. I think there's even a laugh track at the beginning of the of the commercial. There might be that. I mean, unless you heard me laughing, clear from LA. <laughs> I might. Have. <laughs> wow yeah it's pretty it's pretty and i love that the girl's like she's in the bath she's like wow this is so out of sight yeah. like 
dude, like, can this be any more, like, we're trying to be cool and hip, like, with this dialogue. I'm pretty sure Grandma called it gear. Yes, she did. She did. (laughs) (laughs) You know, this is, like, written by a bunch of, like, Don Draper types, like, trying to, like, hip themselves. Totally. It totally reminded me of that scene in A Hard Day's Night where George walks into the the agency. (laughs) Susan? You don't know Susan? Yeah, we should have... The TV down at home make rude comments. She's dead grotty. (laughs) Grotesque. He's grotesque. Yeah, he's grotesque. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Yeah, it's totally like that. Wild mile beetle beetle bubble bath. My favorite. Excuse me. I'm going to be setting up an eBay alert for that. (laughs) Well, if you ever find it, make sure you take a really kind of inappropriately odd you know film of you in the bath i i will i i yeah it'll be super out of sight god i love it so much Ugh. anyway well that wraps up another edition of because the beatles thanks again for tuning in follow us in our channels bc the beatles everywhere and be sure to subscribe and tell all your friends leave us a review and don't forget send us a link to your review let us know you left it anywhere dm us on facebook twitter instagram email us at bc the beatles at gmail.com let us know and you'll be entered to win the egypt station metro card and it's so cool you really want it i love mine (laughs) i can't wait to get mine i'm so excited all right well thanks again and we will see you next time here on because beatles bye